Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, The gospel reading this morning is from Luke's gospel, and the story that he tells starts late in the day just before sunset on the day that the church calls Good Friday. So let me read it for us. I'll read Luke 23, 50 through 24, 12. It's printed in the order of worship, and you can follow along if you'd like to. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we, for a few minutes, talk about this word that we just read and heard together, as we think about it, as we meditate on it, that you would meet every one of us, that you would, by your spirit, meet all of us who are here this morning, those of us who have come hungry and thirsty and ready to hear from you, those of us who aren't sure exactly why we're here, those of us who have faith, those of us who don't. Father, meet all of us and show us the grace of the risen Jesus, and we ask that you would change us by it. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you a story about Albert Einstein, and uh, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know if this actually happened or not, (laughs) and no amount of Googling has been able to confirm or deny whether this actually happened with Albert Einstein or not, but I can tell you that I first read this story on the internet. So it's probably true, right? I mean, so here's how it goes. One day, the great uh, theoretical physicist was traveling away from Princeton on the train, and the conductor came into his car and started working his way down, uh, punching the tickets of all of the passengers, and he got to Einstein, 
and Einstein reached into his uh, jacket pocket for his ticket, and his ticket wasn't there. Uh, so Einstein started to scramble a little bit. Uh, he looked in his pants pockets. He looked in his briefcase. He looked on the seat beside him. No ticket. So the conductor saw all of this going down, uh, and he said, don't worry about it, Dr. Einstein. I know who you are. I mean, every, everybody on this train knows who you are. I'm sure that you bought a ticket. You're fine. And so Einstein looked uh, appreciative, and the conductor moved on. But when the conductor got to the end of the car, he looked back, and to his surprise, Einstein was on his hands and knees underneath the seat looking for that ticket. And so the conductor rushed back to him and tried to assure him, Dr. Einstein, it's like I said, you don't have to worry about it. It's okay. I know who you are. And Einstein replied to him, I know who I am too. What I don't know is where I'm supposed to be going. <laughs> I have got to find that ticket. So like I said, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. But I think I know why I want it to be true. <laughs> because there's something about it that is uh, comforting, something reassuring, something that might make people like us feel a little less alone. I mean, if, if the quantum mechanics theory of relativity guy can feel a little bit lost from time to time, then I don't feel so bad about feeling a little bit lost from time to time. And I think we've all felt like that at some point in our lives and in a room like this, in a place like this, I'm sure some of us are feeling a little lost right now. And I don't mean, of course, being on a train and not remembering where you're heading. I'm, I'm talking about the weightier stuff in life, you know, like slowly emerging from these last couple of years, trying to figure out what it looks like to reconnect and rebuild relationships and find a place maybe in this big city or maybe just trying to figure out how to start over. Or maybe suffering under the sadness of a loss you have experienced or a loss that you are in the middle of experiencing right now. Or maybe confused and frustrated at the nature of our common life. You know, frustrated at the polarization that runs so deep, all of the talking at instead of the talking to that's happening with not a lot of forward progress to better things. Or maybe you just feel a bit lost, wrangling with the kind of questions that humans have been asking themselves for a long time. Questions, you know, that you can, you can only put off for so long. Questions about guilt and shame and purpose and meaning and life and death and hope. Well, that's one of the reasons I love this story that we just read together, because it is filled with people like us. It is filled with people who feel a little bit lost. Joseph of Arimathea lost over this hope he had, this dream he had for the future. These women lost over the death of someone that they loved dearly, Peter. Lost over the regret that he feels over some really bad decisions that I'm sure he wanted to take back. They're all just kind of wandering around in this story, doing the best that they can. And then they find themselves found. Very unexpectedly, they find themselves found. 
found uh, by the one who the angels are talking about when they ask the women that beautiful question, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. (laughs) He's risen. And church, because that's true, I want you to know that Jesus is still out finding lost people. He's still out finding people like us. And I hope that we will believe that that is true this morning and that we will experience it for the first time or for some of us again. So Luke, the gospel writer, tells us about this man named Joseph from a town called Arimathea. Luke says he was a member of the council, and by that what he means is he's a member of this group called the Sanhedrin. These were the guys who held all of the cards in first century Jerusalem. These were the guys who were the religious, political, legal, ruling elite in that place. They were the ones who had condemned Jesus at that shabbily thrown together trial. These guys were the ones who had delivered Jesus to Pilate for a Roman execution. He is one of those guys. But then things get uh, complicated. (laughs) He was a good and righteous man, Luke says. And as it turns out, He was also a dissenter. (laughs) He had not consented to the Sanhedrin's decision and action when it came to Jesus. And then Luke says what is, I think, maybe the most important thing that we can know about Joseph, that he was looking for the kingdom of God. It's important, I think, to know what that means, what it was exactly that Joseph was looking for, Well, the kingdom of God isn't a place that you travel to. The kingdom of God is not some location that has a palace in it floating up in the sky somewhere. The kingdom of God is not a bare ideal. It's not a metaphor for progress or anything like that. In Scripture, the kingdom of God is the gracious and peaceable rule of God. It is his dominion in this world. It is what happens here under the actual rule of God. The kingdom of heaven is swords being beaten into plowshares. The kingdom of heaven is nations giving up on war because God is restoring the world to the peace in which he made it in the first place. The kingdom of God is not being afraid. The kingdom of God is never being afraid because evil has been dealt with forever. It's never being afraid because justice never, ever, ever gets twisted inside out anymore. The kingdom of God is unhinged joy because like we heard in that Old Testament lesson this morning, all of the tears are wiped away because death is swallowed up forever. The kingdom of God is meaning, (laughs) deep meaning for people like you and me because we can be forgiven and restored into the humans that we were always meant to be, set free in this world to live and to love for its good. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's red-blooded and it's real and it is full of life and full of good. And I got to say, you know, I got to wonder, even if you're someone who's here this morning who's a bit skeptical of stuff like that, who thinks maybe that sounds too good to be true, like, like that's a fairy tale or something, you have to admit it would be good to be wrong about it, right? 
That's why Jesus said stuff like the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great value worth selling every last thing that you have to get your hands on it. And scripture is filled with the promise that it is absolutely true. And Joseph of Arimathea, for his part, spent his life looking for it. You know, maybe that's why he was on that ruling council in the first place. You know, he wanted to do some good in this world, maybe move things towards good. You know, as the young prophet Jesus had taught his followers to pray, maybe Joseph wanted to help make the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us that he was actually a secret disciple of Jesus, and that means that Joseph had made an incredibly important connection in his life. He had connected the coming of God's rule with the person and work of Jesus. Somehow, he knew they were connected. He believed they were connected, just like Jesus said they were. Jesus, he believed, brought the kingdom of God near. Not that any of that mattered now, right? That dream died when Jesus died. And so Joseph is lost. Back to square one. Still looking for the kingdom of God. Wondering if he ever, ever will see it. So the least he could do for this one that he had honored was to take care of his body. And some of us may feel uh, a bit like Joseph, uh, ideologically lost, for lack of a more precise way of putting it. You know, people that have a hope for something better, we have this hope for something better for ourselves, this hope for something better for this broken world, but we also harbor this deep uncertainty about how that's going to happen and where that good can be found. I think that's why we grasp so hard at the levers that we think are going to move stuff in that direction, towards the good. Politics, of course, has always been one of those levers. <laughs> you know, our political leaders, they, they certainly traffic in the language of hope that you find in Scripture. They do that all the time, at least until they are elected. But I can't remember a time in my life when things have felt uh, quite as stuck and quite as entrenched and quite as polarized as they are right now in our common life. Jonathan Haidt wrote about this last week in The Atlantic in a piece that he provocatively called Why the Last Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. He gives uh, several answers that overlap to that question. One of them is the nature of social media and how distributed networks can cause outrage, and they can cause protests, and they can cause overthrow, but they can never govern. He points to lots of protest movements from the last decade from all over the world. Protest movements held together by a desire to overthrow existing institutions, but as he put it, without offering an alternative vision for the future or an organization that could actually bring it about. And I don't know how that sounds to you, but it sounds true to me. <laughs> we traffic in outrage, but we know deep down that that is a thin and measly parody of hope. 
as helpful as politics are and as helpful as protest is, and they are helpful, they can only go so far because they cannot hold up the weight of the broken world. And they certainly can't remake the broken world. That hope, that hope, was the hope that Jesus offered to Joseph of Arimathea. That's the hope that he offered to anyone else who would listen to him preach. And Joseph dared to believe it. But that's all gone now. And the scene shifts to those women who had come all the way from Galilee to be with Jesus until the very end. In verse 56, Luke lets us in on their sad and silent reconnaissance. They followed to the tomb, and they saw how his body was laid. They are lost too. These women are swimming in grief. These women had come from Jesus' home in Galilee. They had known him for a very long time. In fact, it's not too hard to imagine that maybe some of them knew him first as a child, as as the carpenter's son. But somewhere along the way, their allegiance to him had become deeper than fondness for a fellow Galilean. These women had also come to believe that Jesus was something more than a prophet. These women had come to the place where they dared to believe that maybe, just maybe, Jesus was the yes to all of the good promises of God. These women had become disciples. These women had begun to follow Jesus. And it matters, it matters to point out forever That unlike the countless others who had called Jesus teacher, unlike the men who had been closest to him for the last three years of his life, who scattered at his arrest, these women, these women followed him to the very end. And I mean to the very end. And then they followed past it. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and Salome and the unnamed others, towering towering women of our faith. Even if no one else would, even if no one else could, these women had made up their minds that they would care for Jesus' body in a way that honored him. And they came to the tomb at early dawn with red eyes and faces drawn in sorrow. They had come for one last act of devotion before they entered into that long numbing tunnel of grief that death always carves out for people like us. Every one of us in here, every one of us in here has been touched by the lostness those women feel that, mor- that morning. They are like us. We are like them. Some of us are feeling the acuteness of loss right now. We've suffered a loss, some of us in here. We've suffered a loss and we feel like it was yesterday. Others of us here this morning uh, are feeling the inevitability of a loss looming in front of us. Others of us I know in this room haven't quite yet experienced the acuteness of loss that those women feel. But we know time will bring it near. And I just want you to know, church, I want you to know on Easter morning that death is an uninvited rupture in God's good creation. It was uninvited, and we were not made for it. None of us were made for it. 
It's an enemy. It's an enemy that slipped in after our first parents imagined that they might just be better at playing God than God was. And I'm telling you, church, from that moment, from that moment, this incredible promise begins to pulse throughout the words of Scripture. And it is that God will fix it. He will fix that rupture. He will defeat that enemy, even if it costs him everything. He will swallow up death forever, and he will wipe tears from everyone's faces. But those women, those women are lost because once again, the last enemy has won. They are lost that morning because once again, that locked, heavy, immovable door of death has shut in their faces. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, there was no remedy for their pain, was there? There was no hope for anything different, right? Unless, unless something remarkable has happened. Unless they woke up that morning in a different world than the one that they went to sleep in the night before. And things start to happen pretty quick. <laughs> things start moving pretty quickly, faster than these women were probably able to take it in. The stone is, is rolled away when they get there, and they rush into the tomb, and to their surprise, Jesus' body is not there either. They find this in shock, and that, that adrenaline and that confusion starts coursing through their bodies, and they find themselves stuck and flat-footed. And then behold, Luke says, two men in dazzling apparel appear in front of them, and they ask them a question that reverberates that reverberates, that continues to reverberate, that continues to rattle with this wildly crazy hope right up until this very second. They say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. This is not the right place to find him. And it takes him a minute. <laughs> Virginia Owens, the writer... She said, the movement from despair to hope never appears to happen automatically or instantaneously. Emotional time progresses at a slower pace. Just as it takes a while to absorb the fact of loss, hope takes time to digest. And then they remember. Then they remember Jesus' words. This is exactly how he said it was going to go down. He has taken on the last enemy, and his resurrection means that that enemy has been defeated. He has kicked open that locked, heavy, immovable door, and he has made a way for people like us to follow him in faith through that door into new life. And that gracious and peaceable rule of God that rule of God that Joseph of Arimathea was looking for and that we're looking for too, if we will just be honest enough to admit it, it has taken root in this broken earth. It has been planted in this broken place and it's growing and the promise remains that one day it will cover the whole earth. And church, it didn't come by amassing more power. It came by humbly giving power up. It came by the self-giving love of the death of Jesus. And by his resurrection, I'm telling you, he holds up the weight of the broken world. And by his resurrection, he is slowly remaking it into the place that it was meant to be. 
And if we follow Jesus in faith and if we follow Jesus in repentance, to our surprise, we will find that we have a role to play in that remaking. Because we are forgiven and restored people, we are given everything that we need to love as Jesus has loved us. And I gotta say, it's probably the least surprising thing in the world that when those women go back and tell the men what's happened, that the men don't believe them. That is very predictable. Except for Peter. There's Peter. Guy with a whole bunch of regret swirling around in his heart, along with a whole bunch of grief swirling around in his heart. And he's sitting there listening to them, and he's thinking, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way they're right. But what if they are? What if they're right? That would be the best thing that I've ever heard. Because it would mean there was hope for a guy like me. And he rose and he ran. And I hope that we will run beside him in faith this morning and see and believe. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, open our hands and we ask that you would place faith in them so that we could take up our place beside Joseph and these beautiful women and Peter and see and believe so that we could be changed and so that we could be a people through whom you love this broken world. We pray this in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen.